Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. again, everyone. Uh, our passage today is Mark 14, 43 through 65. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 1008. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now, the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days will build another, not made by man. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. And then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fist, and said, Prophecy. And the guards took him and beat him. The word of the Lord. Last week we talked about accepting the suffering that God has given us when it's his will that it should not pass. It was in the context of Jesus wrestling in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, regarding whether or not he would be another, another way if he didn't have to die on behalf of mankind. I mean, after all, he was falsely accused, an innocent man going 
to be sentenced to death. But today, we are going to talk about um, how to accept rejection in our relationships. So not just how do we deal with our suffering well, but how does that play out in the people around us? Um, after I got out of prison, I think I was out maybe six months or so, and a friend of mine passed away, a friend from my old friend group. So I went to the funeral, and I sort of prepared myself that there were going to be many people I knew uh, from the old life who knew the old Adam. When I showed up, sure enough, they were all standing there um, in groups. And when I walked in, it was one of those moments. It was almost like cinematic. It was like, was it really him? They'd whisper to each other. They'd look back. They'd whisper some more. I'd walk by. I just sort of smiled. Lane and I went and paid our respects. Uh, to the parents of my friend, but in the end, none of my friends spoke to me. None of them. And it was a moment where I was sort of torn. I was, uh, maybe I was expecting it a little bit, so I had prepared myself. But really in the moment, I felt that pain of rejection all over again. After all, these are the, these are the people who I thought were my closest friends, my closest, you know, um, and they had rejected me, largely, I think, because they didn't know who I'd become. They were judging the person I was that day based off of what they knew of the person I was, frankly, six years prior. So I had to deal with some of those things. I had to process some of those emotions about what does it mean uh, about me, you know, walking in and everyone just sort of doing the tisk tisk as they saw me walk in. Um, in the end, I was really being accused of somebody I wasn't. The Adam that they saw that day was not the Adam that they knew six years ago. The Adam from six years ago probably deserved their treatment. The Adam of that moment certainly had did not. So I had to come to terms with that. And so I, when I was reading this passage, that story in my own life sort of resonated with me. And after all, I mean, we all have to face rejection sometimes, don't we? We've all had it, whether it's on the playground and the preteen drama that certainly occurs at recess or who gets picked last, or who gets picked first. And for those of you who are been around here for a while, know that it doesn't really get any better as you get older sometimes. There's bullies everywhere. There's rejection everywhere. Um, we're falsely accused of being someone we aren't or saying something we didn't say actually quite frequently. Uh, either we see it on TV and we're lumped into an entire group of people, or it's personal and face-to-face. -face. Today we're going to look and see how Jesus dealt with false accusation and his own rejection by the very people that he came to save. You know, dealing with unjust rejection and accusation in a godly manner is really important. It's important to note as we're talking about this that you got to listen to, I'm talking about unjust accusation. Sometimes it's completely uh, motivated by reality. Sometimes we have a just reason for being accused. That's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about those times when someone accuses us of saying something, of thinking something, of behaving in a way uh, that is just not true. When we are guilty, we need to look at other things, just like what is the substance of the accusation and look to ourselves, confess where we're wrong, seek restoration and reconciliation. But not knowing how to handle false accusation in our life uh, can bring problems and make matters worse. If they didn't have a good reason, uh, for believing what we were saying, sometimes we can act in a way that supports their initial argument, their initial issue, or we can wrongly internalize our rejection and make our rejection about us and not about something with them. So let's look at this, and we're going to go through line by line. 
going to stop and make some comments as we go through the text, and then there's four lessons for us this morning that we're going to talk about. I feel obligated to say, I don't know if I should say this, but late last night when I was working on my sermon, I deleted my notes. So you're getting the one week of in my head and about an hour this morning's worth of preparation. I, I, I feel bad saying that because I don't want you to like qualify, oh, he did a bad job today, so he's, you know, no. But I want you to know that I've prayed that the Lord, he does this right now because, he, in fact, he does it every week, but really this week. So be grace Bible church with me this morning, okay? <laughs> All right. 43, let's turn up in our Bibles. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Basically, all of the religious leaders of the nation of Israel have gathered together these guards and have sent them off with weapons to get Jesus. 44, now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him, and lead him away under guard. I find that interesting. Why didn't Judas just walk up and say he's the one? I mean, they knew Jesus was who he was. They must have. They'd seen him in the temple teaching in the courts all the time. They'd seen him walking through Jerusalem. He had been on his ministry path for three years. Certainly they knew who the man was. Yet it's almost as if to make Judas's betrayal as bad as possible. To add insult to injury and to make the rejection of Jesus that much more stark, he says, I will betray the one with a kiss. Maybe Judas still was under the impression that the other disciples, the apostles, wouldn't know that it was him. And he was trying to do something sort of on the sly and so avoid the consequences of being rejected by the other 11. We can't know, but I just think it's really interesting. He didn't have to do what he did here. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi term of respect and endearment, which means master or teacher, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near him drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. The Gospel of John says that it was Peter who took the sword and chopped off Malchus's ear, a specific name. I find it interesting, you know, Peter was a fisherman. Peter was not a warrior. So Peter, wielding a sword and lopping off an ear, this was not a precision strike. He was going for this, and he missed, and all he managed to get was the ear. Again, in, the, in various Gospels, there's, Jesus picks up the ear. So I guess he picks it up. It says he heals him. He restores it. Maybe he grew a whole new ear. I don't know. But Jesus fought back against that impulse in his own disciples to lash out and to act in a way that did not comport with kingdom principles. He healed the servant of the very people who were trying to take him and take him to the cross. You know, people often want to take revenge on our behalf. So when we're talking about being falsely accused by somebody else, we often process it through other people, but we need to be cautious. When we share these things with others, people who are loved ones, people who care about us, a couple of things happen. First of all, they really only get one half of the story. And it's never a great place to be making any sort of judgment. And two, that problem can often spread. It's contagious. And Satan likes nothing more than creating some of these issues that just sort of permeate the rest of the people around you, creating triangulation. And it doesn't no longer becomes just an issue of two people. It's now a third party involved. And so we need to be cautious. We need to rein people in. We need to check people by the way we're sharing our story so as to not 
give them a reason to lash out at somebody else on our behalf. In the end, the best we can do, I believe, is ask them to pray for the situation and for us. 48, Jesus goes on and says, am I leading a rebellion? I almost feel like when I read this, he's saying it to Peter as much as he's saying it to the people who are arresting him. Am I leading a rebellion? Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? It's really an interesting question that he asks because I believe in the minds of those who sent these men, the answer would have been yes. He is leading a rebellion. That was certainly the fear many times throughout the scripture of the gospels when we see Jesus's life. Those who knew Jesus and sought to understand his ministry and try to get what he was doing understood him in the terms of a revolutionary. Somebody who is going to come restore the messianic promise of the nation of Israel. Somebody who would make things right. And in the process would sort of necessarily take the Pharisees off of their pedestal. Not only take the religious leaders off their pedestal, but create waves. Waves that in the past had caused Roman invasion and brutal, brutal intervention by those who had um, been in the country, those who had possessed the country. And so, yeah, my leading rebellion, their answer probably would have been yes, they thought. But Jesus again and again throughout his life reiterated the fact that that was not the case, certainly in his three years of ministry. He would often downplay something when people misunderstood what he was saying. They thought he was going to rise up and lead the nation of Israel to rebellion against Rome and her oppressors. He would say, no, that's not why I'm here. He would say, in fact, oftentimes when we read the Gospels, we hear him say, don't, don't tell anybody what just happened. Because he was managing the message of who he was to the people of Israel. He didn't want them to misunderstand. You know, despite all the evidence of Jesus' life, they still were able or still wanted to accuse him at the end. And this can happen in our own life. People see us act and interact with them. They see our heart for the Lord or our heart for them. And when they get it in their mind that we've done something wrong to them, it's often filtered out through all you know the other good things we've done. The other people or parts of ourselves that we are are filtered out. And just the one issue is looked at. They do not account for all the evidence. They filter details. And guess what? So do we. When someone has done something or we perceive that someone has done something against us, we tend to filter all of the details. We, take the, we tend to hold on to those pieces which will support our argument and discount or minimize the ones that don't. So we need to be cautious, not only about the way we interact with people when we're falsely accused, but how we bring accusation to others. We need to be cautious. Verse 49. He says, every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me. But after all, the scriptures must be fulfilled. And then everyone deserted him and fled. Now, if you recall last week, all of the disciples or the week before, all of the disciples said, we will never leave you. Even if we go unto death, we must die for you. We will never leave you. Peter was the first to say it. All the other disciples jumped on board. And here we are. Hours later. Hours. This is a side note. How many times have you uh, fallen, sinned, felt bad, confessed, talked to the Lord, said, I will never leave you or desert you, and hours later, there you are again, fleeing, deserting again. Yet God is gracious and God is good. So much so that he died for you knowing that. 
These events, when we read this passage, are essentially the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 52 and 53, really a prophecy that was written 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. In the prophet Isaiah, uh, the prophet speaks about one who would be a suffering servant. And what's really remarkable, when you go back and you look at that passage, you look at that text, it, it's the life of Jesus. In fact, it's almost this very passage 700 years prior. So when we read this, it's almost right before our eyes seeing that as the passage says, he was despised and rejected by men. The fulfillment of a prophecy 700 years prior. Jesus was rejected by his own family, his friends, his countrymen, often falsely accused of being someone or doing things that he didn't do. Verse 51. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving the garment behind. What do you make of verses like this when you're going through passages? You know, I know that every single verse is in the scripture for a reason. God wants it there. So what is it that we can glean from this? Well, a couple of things. First of all, it's likely that this is Mark, the author of the gospel. It's very common for authors and humility to not actually bring their own name into the gospel. We see this in the gospel of John. John called himself the disciple Jesus loved. He never really spoke about himself in the third person or used the name John. So this is likely Mark. What I think it shows is the tremendous fear that these disciples felt. Here's Jesus, the one who they thought would restore all things. Their Messiah, the one in whom was salvation, was being arrested and taken by a group of armed men. And in his own fear, in the seriousness of the situation, was willing to abandon his very clothing to save his skin. Sort of lost his clothes to save his skin. In this whole scene, Jesus could have resisted. He could have fought with his accusers. In fact, in a passage, in another gospel, he says, I could rain down legions of angels to defend me. But he didn't. So that's our first lesson. When we're unjustly accused, one, we do not lash out. We do not lash out. It's so easy to be angry after all. I know when people come to me and say, you know, you've done this, and I know that I haven't, the first thing that I feel is anger. It's important to note, though, that anger is usually a secondary sort of emotion. Very rarely do we feel anger just because we're angry. Anger is often motivated by something deeper. And if we really stop and we think, why are we angry, we'll see that. Oftentimes, we're angry because maybe we're embarrassed. So we feel foolish, and it comes out in this defensive mechanism, and it feels like anger. Or we're sad, or we're afraid. I remember being a kid. I loved, I don't know why I do this. I used to love scaring my mother. Uh, but the response was never, ha-ha. The response was something like, I'm going to kill you. It was in her fear. The response to that fear, she'd also say things like, you're going to give me a heart attack. And like, literally, you're going to give me a heart attack. I probably would have. But it was in her fear that her anger came out. I noticed that in my own life, Calvin did it a couple of years ago. We were at a restaurant and I was coming out the door. I was talking to a friend and I turned like this and he went, Bleh! like that. And I just lost it. Lane's like, okay, all right. Yeah, okay. I was afraid. And in my fear, the anger came out. So we need to guard our hearts and see what it is that we're really feeling. Try to understand our feelings, even in the moment, lest we lash out and make things worse. Jesus calls us to be peacemakers. Peacemakers. 
In fact, he says it in his Beatitudes in Matthew 5. It says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. We often hear the term peacekeepers, right? Usually in the context of like NATO or the United Nations going on a peacekeeping mission. Peacekeeping means that we just prevent hostilities. We don't solve the problem. We just prevent the battles. As Christians, we are called to not be peacekeepers. We are called to be peacemakers. These are people who take an active role in striking for peace amid conflict. These are people who, we are called to be people who will wade in to the difficult situations. We'll make hard decisions. We're called to find ways to go forward, to strike for peace, to make peace. Peter's immediate response was to fight back, and this is often ours as well. But we are called to absorb evil and repay it with good in our relationships, even towards our enemies. Even towards our enemies. Romans 12 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So we do not take revenge. We do not lash out and say, well, they got me, I'm going to get you. The impulse for revenge is quite subtle. We might not even say, well, I'm going to get them back, but we act that way. Someone who's falsely accused you or you feel rejected by, the next time you interact with them, you're different, aren't you? You might be a little more tentative in the way that you talk to them, or you might be a little less gracious when you have the opportunity to show the grace of Jesus Christ to them in your relationship. And so we need to guard our hearts. Are we seeking to take revenge? Because in the end, we're commanded to let God fight our battles. We needn't lash out because God has said, I got this. I see what's happening. I know what's happening. And I will take care of you. When unjustly accused, people usually have already made up their mind on their response based on your erroneous, let me rephrase that. When you're, let me skip that. This is possible, letting God fight our battles only as we submit to the will of God in our life. Only as we can say again and again, every moment, not my will, but thine. This is the Christian life. I don't know, you know, when we look at Jesus in the garden last week, his words there. If, you, if someone asks, you know, how do you sum up the Christian life? That. Not my will, but thine. Submission to our good father. Because nothing happens outside of our father's permissive will. You know, I've said things like, if it's happened, it's God's will. And I get pushback on that. Sometimes people will say, well, it can't be God's will that something bad happened to me. I had this traumatic experience. That can't be God's will. That wasn't good. How could God will something that wasn't good? I'd simply point out that the death of Jesus on the cross, unjustly, as an innocent man, was not good. Yet it was God's will that that should happen. And as the Lord gave up his own will to the Father's will, the good came out of it. You know, that's a hard pill to swallow. When we're being falsely accused, really when anything has happened to us that is wrong, part of the way we process through that, the way we get some meaning and get our feet under us in that is to embrace the fact that if it's happened, the Lord has willed it to happen. And because the Father is good and gracious and merciful towards us, 
He does not allow anything to happen to us that is beyond what he has allowed. And ultimately for our own good, that's a hard one. The thing that will make us more like Jesus, that trauma that will change the way we view life. In the end, when we've given it up to him, when we trust him, when we look to him as the one who will defend us, trusting him that his will is is good for us, we will find growth and meaning. Verse 53, let's go back. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law came together. This is the Sanhedrin trial. It's the word that we heard in the passage, the Sanhedrin. This was basically the highest religious court of the land. And this trial, if we can call it that, that Jesus was brought to was illegal for lots of reasons. First of all, it was at night. You could not try somebody at night. That in and of itself would have made the trial illegal, but there's a whole bunch more. Day before a holy day, you couldn't have a trial. You certainly could not have a capital offense trial, which is really what they were seeking to do, put him to death before a high holy day, because they were not going to be rushed in making their decision. When you read this, there's nothing but rush in this. They had conflicting witnesses' testimonies. The Old Testament again and again says that people would, that evidence would be taken on two or three witnesses, that you need to have multiple people affirming the same thing in order to receive that evidence in the trial, yet they had conflicting witnesses. Death sentence trials could not, could not conclude in one day. They had to be a two-day trial. Evidence that unanimous verdicts were actually amounted to an acquittal. So let me rephrase that. It was impossible to have a unanimous verdict in the Sanhedrin because one of the people on the Sanhedrin was tasked with defending the accused. And if that person gave the robust defense that the Sanhedrin's own rules demanded, there would have always been one dissenting voice, one vote in favor of the defendant, the lawyer for the defendant. Yet in this case, we see that the chief priest tears his robes. He says, we've heard the blasphemy. What is it? And they all agreed, a unanimous verdict, which should have shown, and it does show here, that it's a sham. Because Jesus had no defense counsel. We don't see anyone arguing on his behalf in any of the Gospels. And among other things, there's a lot more, but among other things, the trial's held in the wrong place. It's at the chief priest's house. Could you imagine going back to the judge's house and not having something happen at the court? We're going to do this in my backyard. So it was a sham. The whole trial was a sham. It didn't matter what Jesus said. It didn't matter what was going to happen. They wanted their verdict, and they were going to get it. 54, Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priests. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. This sets us up for next week's sermon, which is Peter's denial. Peter's the only disciple to follow, and he follows at a distance. And as we'll see, he's accused of being a follower of Christ and denies it. 55, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they couldn't find any. Why? Because he was innocent. There was no evidence. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not even agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Now, for those of us who know the scripture and know what Jesus said, that is not what Jesus said. They're twisting, and not even twisting, they're adding to what he said. What he said was, is, I will destroy this temple in three days, I will break, raise it up again. And it even goes on to say, he was speaking about his body, not 
the actual physical temple. Yet those who have made up their mind about falsely accusing us do not look at all of the evidence. And it's important for us to know. It's clear from all of this that the religious leaders had already pronounced judgment upon Jesus. This can happen to us, and sometimes we do this to others. Someone does something, and it's like they're dead to us. We've decided that. <laughs> we are never going to hear the rest of the evidence for what they have to say. But we need to be different. Christ is calling us to be different. We need to be willing to hear the story, and we need to encourage others to be willing to hear us. But in the end, we don't lash out. 60, then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony? that the men are bringing against you, but Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Whereas lashing out relates to sort of our emotional response, maybe our anger response to being falsely accused, the second point for this morning relates to our words, and this is to use wisdom, use wisdom when defending yourself. Jesus did not speak a word. There comes a time when nothing you say is going to make anything better. There comes a time because people have already made up their mind, adding more words will make things worse than make things not make things better. In fact, the best defense, frankly, brothers and sisters, is a good proactive defense. The best defense against false accusation is to live a life so above reproach, one that is so deeply rooted in the love of God and the expression of our image of God to others that people, they wouldn't believe that you would do something like this. We allow our previous behavior to speak for itself. We seek to live above reproach, and when we do err, we humbly and quickly admit our faults. Yet Jesus' silence was the fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53, the one we talked about before, this is Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. He didn't need to because they had already made up their minds. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't seek to clear up understanding when we can, but we need to recognize that it's sometimes, maybe most of the time, not going to fix anything. Jesus spent three years explaining that he was blameless to them. His entire ministry. Yet they had already made up their minds. This is, and what even, gives me even greater pause, I guess, about this whole thing is if we know in John 3, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, it says he comes at night because he doesn't probably want people to see him come, and he speaks to Jesus, and he says something along the lines of, Rabbi, we know that you are from God, because only someone from God can do the things that you do. This is a member of the Pharisees. This is a member of the Sanhedrin. And he comes and he says, we know you are from God. Think about that. So when they pronounce judgment upon him here, they recognize that this man is divine in some way, that he is sent from God of very God. Yet, because they were seeking to protect themselves, they already had made up their mind to put him to death. You know, rarely do defense attorneys allow their clients to take the stand. Am I right? Yes. Ask the, our attorney here. This is because anything, anything that the defendant says can be turned around and used against them. Even statements that are 100% truth can be shaded by those who are intent on finding guilt. You can take something so innocent, something so true, and turn it around and make someone look even more guilty. Jesus knew that. He remained silent. We need to be wise with the way we answer our accusers. 
there's two verses here in Proverbs that have always sort of stuck out to me. The first one is Proverbs 26.4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. Okay, so don't wade into the chaos. When someone's speaking foolishness do not or untruth, do not go there with him because you end up becoming just like him. Okay, got it. Now in my Bible study, move to the next verse, 26.5. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. So we have two verses right next to each other that seem to say two opposite things. You know why they do? Because they're two opposite things. We are forced to discern the times that we speak to a fool according to his folly and times that we remain quiet. We remain quiet. So how do we do this? How do we know? Well, first of all, I think that best, we err on the side of silence. Often we speak and make things so much worse. Err on the side of silence. Proverbs 10.19, where words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Speak only truth and love when we do speak and when we must confess honestly wherever you can, wherever you can. Rarely in a situation where you're being accused or rarely in a situation where there's some interpersonal strife where someone is accusing you of doing something, I will say almost never, <laughs> are you 100% innocent. Oftentimes there are some shades, oftentimes there are some things that you can own, that you can confess, that you can say, yes, I can embrace that. I can own this. And it goes a long way in creating goodwill when you're trying to interact with people like this. Anyway, all right. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Flat out asks him, and Jesus says, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting on the right hand of the mighty one and coming to the clouds of heaven, on the clouds of heaven. That's basically Jesus signing his death warrant in that statement. And it was 100% true. He's referring to a prophecy in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. You don't have it here, but I'm going to read it. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus is saying, yes, I am he, and I am the one from Daniel that you surely know, the promised Messiah. He left no doubt in the court's mind. Like I said, he signed his own death warrant, but I think he pulled an Arnold Schwarzenegger and basically said, I'll be back. When falsely accused, we often hear something that is intended to question our identity. Something like, can you call yourself a Christian? I mean, this is what we see them asking Jesus. Who are you? When we stand accused, either rightly or wrongly, it's essential that we distinguish for ourselves between what we've done, our deeds, and who we are as a child of God. So three, embrace your identity as a child of God. You know, it can be painful to be accused of something we didn't do or be rejected by others. Some of us, I know some of you, will say, who cares? I am what I am. The Popeye defense, right? I am what I am. Like, it, like me or leave me. It's like, that's how it is. Others are so sensitive that the slightest hint of criticism will crumble. There's got to be some place in the middle, and I think there is. When we're looking at the spectrum of how do I look at myself versus do I defend myself and I don't care about any, what anyone says, or I care about what everybody says, the spectrum needs to be triangulated. There needs to be a third variable, and that is child of God. 
You're a child of God. You see, when we were made for deep connection, when we're, we're made to interact with people, when those connections get severed for whatever reason, unjustly or not, I think we feel the pain regardless of how we let on to ourselves or to others. It's always a painful thing. So what do we do? We focus on who God says we are and not who others say we are. Because in the end, it's not who we are, it's whose we are. We are a child of the king. Do not believe the lies that are levied against you by Satan when processing your rejection. When someone rejects you, falsely accuses you, and those quiet voices happen, sometimes yelling. (laughs) Only by embracing who we are in Christ can we discern if our rejection is merely perceived or is warranted. Because when we sin, Satan loves to accuse us, questioning our identity, doesn't he? I know he does for me. Mine's, and you're the pastor of the church. It's in these moments that we preach the gospel to ourselves. That yes, we are sinners. But Christ died for every sin that we will ever commit and every sin we will ever commit. It says once for all he died for the ungodly. I've been saved by grace apart from anything I have done. So I will never, ever be condemned because my condemnation has already been addressed at the cross. Our sentence has been paid. Our release is complete and sure. No parole no lost rights, no second-class citizenship, entirely and totally forever free. So in the end, what people say about you, or the unjust accusation, or the rejection that you might feel, in the end, when it's all said and done, doesn't matter, because you're a child of the king. You're a child of the king. The first two points, don't lash out, watch where your words are only possible when we truly embrace our identity in Christ, like I said. But, final point, we need to manage our expectations when interacting with people who are wrongfully accusing us. 63. After hearing the words of Jesus, this is what the high priest does. He tears his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Interesting, another little tidbit. In the book of Leviticus, the high priest was prohibited from tearing his robes. Specifically, he was to be solemn, equitable, non-passionate when rendering his verdicts. When rendering his verdicts, yet he did. I would say that he prejudiced the people who were voting. Could you imagine sitting in a courtroom and before the, the jury even got to deliberate, the judge something like, I can't wait to hear what they say when they come back. Or he, the judge rent his clothing because what you had been accused of was so terrible. They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. In the end, it didn't matter what Jesus had said. The leaders would have found him guilty. He needed to be found guilty. He needed to go to the cross in order that we would be forgiven. You know, this this. Just the hypocrisy here is so stark. These are men who have, by all accounts, by their own accounts certainly, are standing up for what they believe is the truth, protecting the traditions of the elders, upholding their position as leaders, moral leaders, guides to the nation of Israel. And in response to this trial, the sham, they beat Jesus up. Now, let's play that metaphor out even further. 
The judge rends his clothes. They go to a jury. The jury <laughs> deliberates the verdict, comes back in, pronounces the verdict, and then the judge gets up and beats up the convicted. People like this play according to sinful rules and ensure that you will always be wrong. So, when falsely accused, do not lash out. Use wisdom when defending yourself. Watch what you say. Recognize that it's likely or can be turned around on you. Embrace your identity as a child of God and finally manage your expectations. You know, for me, that funeral I talked about at the beginning was an important moment in my life. I really needed that at that time. Because I was wrestling with my own identity. I knew I was a child of God, but what did that look like on the outside? I had not lived outside of prison as a believer. I didn't know where I fit in, who I was going to be. How do I interact with unbelievers, old friends, things like that? So I wasn't sure. The rejection I felt and the pain of the loss of friendships was quickly eclipsed, though, by the new family and the people that God had given me. There's no doubt. I left that feeling the twinge of regret and looking at my identity and saying, I must be a bad, I, mean, I am a bad person. I'm a bad person. But it didn't take me long to talk, I mean, Elaine and I talked about it, and it, but it didn't take me long to come to realize is um, God took something away to give me something better. That's, that's really the bottom line. People who love me and care for me, who are rooted in their love of Jesus themselves, not just friends, brothers, and sisters. And today I'm grateful for the rejection I felt that day and my choice not to engage with them or defend myself or give explanations or beg them, no, you don't know who I am, I'm different, all of that because it would have compromised my values. And it would have kept me engaged there when God was calling me to be engaged here, where I should be, where I want to be. So when you're rejected or you're falsely accused of being someone you're not or doing something that you didn't do, look to God and trust in him to plead your case that one day all will be known and the truth will be revealed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Um, loving us, for willing, Lord, that your son would be rejected, that we would be accepted. Lord, as we get closer to Easter, certainly Good Friday, we pray, Lord, that you would make this real to us. So easy for us to think of what you tell us in your word as something that happened back then or in sort of an abstract way. But Father, we pray that you would Make the life and death, the, the punishment of Christ, the rejection of Christ by his friends, his family, and his fellow countrymen real to us. And that because of his rejection, we are forever accepted by you. And that one day we will stand before you with Christ, our Savior, knowing that he endured all of this for the joy set before him. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.